Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible offers a selection of thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free book. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash UNKSoldiersPod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast, so I can afford half-decent music for my episodes, like this one. Since we're back in the 19th century today, I'm recommending The Pursuit of Power, Europe 1815 to 1914 by Richard J. Evans. This is a fascinating history of Europe and the Industrial Age. It was one of my main sources for the Crimean War. I've listened to it twice, first time for research, second time for fun, and it is free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash UNKSoldiersPod. On with the show. The year, 1864. The place, South America. A small landlocked nation named Paraguay, led by its narcissistic dictator, plunges into war against half a continent. South America's most destructive conflict has begun. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 47, The Paraguayan War Part 1, The Rivers of Destiny. Guys, today we begin another series, a series I've wanted desperately to do since I began this podcast. This is the story of the Paraguayan War, also known as the War of the Triple Alliance. We can use these names interchangeably. This was a big freaking conflict that took place in South America during the mid-19th century. We got it all today. We got crazy dictators, a love story, diplomacy, and politics, and combat, and some of the worst foreign policy decisions in the history of humanity. This one gets really wild, guys. I hope you're ready. I do have one note. I did not manage to finish an introductory episode in time for this series. I ran out of time, I have drill this weekend, I have work, etc. I also don't really know how much people like or want those introductory episodes. If you really want it, uh, message me, and if I get more than a couple messages, I'll go ahead and throw it together for you. But I will, as always, have maps, multiple maps, on my website and social media. Do you know where Paraguay is in relation to Uruguay? Do you know where the Argentine province of Entre Rios is or the Brazilian province of Mato Grosso? Well, guys, there's only so many ways I can tell you that verbally. There's a lot of geography in this war you might be unfamiliar with. So I encourage you to check out my maps. And if you need or want that introductory episode, please dial in and let me know via email or comment or social media. Anyway... You know the deal, guys. This is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. All my sources, along with those maps, will be on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you want them, that's where you can find them. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I think that my pronunciations are pretty good, but I'm probably going to pronounce Paraguay and Uruguay, or Paraguay and Uruguay, inconsistently. And for that, I deeply apologize. Also, Latin American history is very underrepresented in English writing. When it came to research, I did my best. I read every book on this war, and there aren't many of them. Everything I'm telling you is still accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve 
to be unknown soldiers. Long-time listeners will know by now, when I talk about history, I never stick to just what happened. I have to explain why it happened. It's why I talk for so long. People don't make decisions in a vacuum. The why is often just as important as the what. The Paraguayan War, aka the War of the Triple Alliance, is not very well known in the Western world. One of the few things anyone does know about it is sort of the meme, you know, the font of all the jokes. Paraguay picked a fight with Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay all at once. What we can call a big goof. So that's what? But why? Why? This my, that was my big question. Why did a small, landlocked South American republic decide to fight half of South America? And why did the war last for five and a half years? Why didn't this war end immediately? The very short answer is that nationalism's a hell of a drug. What is a nation? It's not the same thing as a country or a state. A nation is bound together not by borders, but by something they all share, or in theory are supposed to share. That could be language or culture or ethnicity, or a shared ideology, or a shared civic idea, or a shared experience. Nations can be based on lots of things. They don't even have to be old. There's a new nation, like the American nation, which is based on civic ideals, not on ethnicity. There's the Israelis or the Taiwanese, which only came, became nations in the last century. Or the nations of South America. When South America broke free from the Spanish or the Portuguese, they had borders, they had governments. But many of them lacked a central unifying idea, an identity, something they could point to and say, this is who we are. The Spanish or Portuguese language, or Catholicism, weren't enough. If that was all they were, then what was the point of being independent from Spain or Portugal? There had to be something more. So in the 19th century, all these newborn countries set out looking for their identity, a set of ideas, a common experience that could define them as a nation. But South America was still plagued by the legacies of colonialism. The borders didn't make any sense. Race and ethnicity split society into castes. Civil war and political instability were rampant. In this chaos, South Americans had to invent nationality. They had to create nations from scratch. And sometimes nations are created based on who you aren't. They're def or defined or evolved based on who you aren't. Lots of nations define themselves against something. Even if they've existed before, they develop and they coalesce around opposition to something else. The Irish nationalism developed in opposition to the British. The Ukrainians have developed in opposition to Russia. Palestinians have developed in opposition to Israel. Sometimes bringing people together means you have to draw a line, a border, who is and isn't part of your nation. And for Latin America... Drawing those lines would help create the Paraguayan War. Today's story is about how the people of Latin America tried to discover and create nations in a very chaotic 19th century. And for some of them, that process would be violent. Nations can be built on shared experience. Nations can be built on history. And when it comes to history and shared experience, you can't do much better than a war. A struggle for your people over their people. That can be very effective. Nations can coalesce very quickly under the pressure of armed conflict. So sometimes countries and leaders might even seek a war or welcome a war as a way to bring their nation together. But when both sides do this, like in the Paraguayan War of 1864, well, 
Both sides might go to war to forge their nations, but only one side can win. War can create nations. It can also destroy them. Today we will begin the story of the Paraguayan War. We will talk a lot about Paraguay, Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay, and how they struggled to define their nations. We will see how these countries came into conflict, how politics and economics and national ambitions, and the really bad decisions of one man, plunged South America into its greatest conflict. There will not be a lot of combat in this episode, this is mostly the background, which should still be fun, but the military history part of this story really picks up in part two. And don't worry, I will tell you why it matters at the end of our story. This is part one, and then part five I will tie it all together. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic trek into South America's greatest conflict, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, grill some burgers, go hang out at the beach. It's summer. Do the thing you need to do. So cut up some beef and have a cup of yerba mate, then mount your horse, your criollo, and sharpen your facon. The caudillos have called you to fight, to kill, maybe to make a nation. And the nations of South America will be forged in blood. Let's go on campaign. Our story has to begin with the rivers, the great rivers of the La Plata Basin that spiderweb across South America and will dominate the Paraguayan War. And I guess we should start in the 1520s, when the Europeans showed up, as usual, to ruin everything. The European explorers were looking for riches, gold and silver. So when they discovered a great river mouth on the eastern coast of South America, they optimistically named it Rio de la Plata the Silver River. La Plata was fed by several other rivers, which penetrated deep into the heart of South America. The Spanish followed one of these rivers and ran into a people called the Guarani. And the Guarani immediately tried to kill them, which is exactly the correct response. Good instincts, guys. The Spanish have zero good intentions. The Spanish retreated down the river that the Guarani called the Paraguay which translates as either Feather Crown of Waters or the river that flows to the sea. The Paraguay River rises in the Mato Grosso Plateau of western Brazil, east of the Andes, before flowing south through marshes and grasslands and forests. This terrain is prime South America, full of capybaras and howler monkeys and jaguars and parakeets. If you need a reference for this terrain, if you need a picture in your mind of what most of the Paraguayan War will be fought in, Florida. Florida. Swamps, marshes, open grassland, very humid, very hot, very sticky. Halfway down the river in 1537, the Spanish built an outpost they called Asuncion, the capital of the new province of Paraguay. About a hundred miles south of Asuncion, the Paraguay is absorbed by the great Parana River, which originates deep in the Brazilian heartlands of Minas Gerais. These two rivers form the western and southern edge of the modern Republic of Paraguay. We will spend a lot of very violent time in the triangle formed by these two rivers. 
The Piranha, now strengthened by the Paraguay, flows south into what would become Argentina. The Uruguay River runs parallel to its east, along what would become the border between Uruguay and Argentina. These two rivers combine at the Rio de la Plata. Here, in 1580, the Spanish founded a new city, a city strategically placed to control access to the rivers, the gateway to half a continent. This was Buenos Aires, the future capital of Argentina. So, these three rivers, the Parana, Paraguay, and Uruguay, are where the Paraguayan War will take place, because economics and politics and military strategy will all depend on access to these rivers, access that was controlled by Buenos Aires, cited at, drumroll please, a geographic choke point. This would cause problems. But back to our story. The Guarani eventually accepted the Spanish as allies, because the Spanish offered protection from the other tribes in the area. A defensive, paranoid mindset, the feeling of being constantly surrounded, is just a running theme in Paraguayan history. So the Spanish settled down to rule the Guarani, though not, not without some evil overlord stuff here and there. They were the Spanish. But Paraguay got off easy. Compared to Mexico, Peru, or Cuba, there was no silver, no gold, no sugarcane. There were just no resources to exploit, and no need to kill thousands of natives exploiting them. So Paraguay just sort of existed, neglected, stagnant. And this allowed this inland, quiet province to evolve in very unusual ways. Throughout most of Latin America, the Spanish enforced a strict racial, racial hierarchy, with groupings called castas, or castes. Spanish-born white people, peninsulares at the top, then white people born in the New World, criollos, or creoles, but below them. But they were superior to mixed people, the part Indian mestizos and part black mulattoes, who were still better than the indios or the negros. And it only got more complicated when those groups started mixing. The Spanish had a racist wordle entry for every color of the human rainbow. But in Paraguay, this racial hierarchy never really developed. Without large-scale immigration from Spain, the small Spanish elite took Guarani wives, and their mestizo children had all the rights of Spanish subjects. This blending took place for centuries, resulting in a racially integrated society unlike any other in Latin America. The Paraguayans, as we can now call them, continued to speak Guarani and harvest yerba mate and practice old traditions, alongside their new Catholic faith and new iron farming tools and new Spanish governors. And they continued to see enemies everywhere. To the west, the Guaycaru Indians, who inhabited the dry grasslands across the Paraguay River, called the Gran Chaco. To the east, Brazilian raiders who kidnapped slaves for the Bahia sugar mills. And to the south, Buenos Aires, who used their control of La Plata to dominate Paraguay economically and politically. In 1776, the Spanish centralized authority in the La Plata Basin into the Viceroyalty of La Plata, with Buenos Aires as its capital dominating the province of Paraguay. To the urban elites of Buenos Aires, the Porteños, it seemed only natural that they should dominate this rustic backwater up in Paraguay. But bigger changes were on the horizon. In 1808, French Emperor Napoleon I took the Spanish king prisoner and invaded his country. 
To Europeans, this was just another chapter of the Napoleonic Wars, same stuff as always. But to Latin America, it was the great turning point of their history. After three centuries of Spanish rule, the colonies were on their own. And pretty soon, they took this opportunity to start declaring independence. And the Latin American Wars of Independence are a really big topic I do not have time to tackle in full. Maybe someday. Our focus today has to be on what happened in the Viceroyalty of La Plata. The merchants of Buenos Aires, who we can now call Argentinians, were among the first to break away from Spain in the May Revolution of 1810. But the Porteños believed that their status as the capital of La Plata entitled them to rule over all of the former Viceroyalty, including Paraguay, which was still ruled by a Spanish governor. So in early 1811, Buenos Aires sent an army under General Manuel Belgrano to bring Paraguay under control. But the Paraguayan militia, not Spanish troops, defeated Belgrano in the battles of Paraguari and Tacuari. Um, this would not be the last General Belgrano to suffer a terrible catastrophe, uh, but that's a story for the Falklands War. Someday, maybe. Argentina was fighting for independence from Spain, but the Paraguayans were fighting for independence from Argentina. During the battle, the Spanish governor panicked and ran away, so the Paraguayans overthrew him too. Neither Madrid nor Buenos Aires was worthy of their loyalty. They could go it alone. By 1813, they declared independence as the Republic of Paraguay. The Republic lasted about five seconds before someone launched a coup and seized power. This was José Gaspar Rodríguez de Francia, who had been professor of theology at Asuncion's Catholic Seminary. In Spanish, he was El Supremo. In Guarani, he was Caray Guazú, the Great Señor. Dr. Francia was Paraguay's first dictator, and he, more than anyone else, made it a nation. Francia wielded a level of absolute, unquestioned power that few dictators have ever achieved. In other Latin American countries, the church, the army, and the white landowning elites were major political forces, but not in Paraguay. Francia had the white elites executed or exiled. He neutered the church. He dominated the military. Dr. Francia believed in one man, one vote. He was the only man. He had the only vote. Francia was famously paranoid, obsessed with enemies both within and without. The Argentinians, the Brazilians, the still hostile Indians to the west. So Francia did something crazy. He shut Paraguay off. Except for a little bitty trade through Brazil, no one entered, no one left. Francia turned Paraguay into an isolated, landlocked hermit kingdom, like a turtle inside a shell. I've seen it compared to North Korea, the North Korea of 19th century South America. This is a great opportunity to introduce one of our catchphrases for this series, stupid dictator shenanigans. I could talk about this guy for ages. Dr. Francia was brilliant, he was ruthless, he was absolutely nuts. Every normal thing he did had a crazy flip side. His public school policy gave Paraguay the highest literacy rate in South America, but he banned college. He defanged, he defanged the church, but he hated atheists. He also hated marriage, but he made interracial marriage mandatory, which destroyed the old racial hierarchy. Francia kidnapped any foreign intruders and kept them in prison for years so they could be his best friends. 
then would release them like 17 years later with no explanation. When he went out riding, he had every bush and every tree uprooted along his path because they might hide assassins. Francia was unique among Latin American dictators because he wasn't corrupt. He lived in like a one-bedroom house with very simple food in virtual poverty. He did like to get hammered, examine the stars with his astronomical devices, and curse loudly, causing the locals to believe he was communicating with the night demons. Raise your hand if you want to get drunk and yell at the night demons with Dr. Francia. Stupid dictator shenanigans. All of this, except maybe screaming curses at the stars, who, who hasn't, who, who among us hasn't, all this had a purpose. By centralizing power, eliminating class or racial or religious divisions, by isolating Paraguay from the outside world, Francia created the conditions for a nation. A group of people who saw themselves as distinct, unlike any other in South America. This was an explicitly racial identity, emphasizing the unique blending of Spanish and Guarani. Of course, this came at the expense of things like freedom, economic growth, higher culture, trade, innovation, but the Paraguayans didn't seem to mind. As one observer noted, He rules them with a rod of iron, without their showing or perhaps feeling the slightest discontent. Francia died suddenly in 1840, having ruled for 26 years. In his will, he left years of his unspent salary to his nation. And many Paraguayans didn't know what to do. The Carai Guazu had basically been loved and feared like a god. Dr. Francia had kept them safe, and now he was gone. You know, as far as insane dictators go, Paraguay could have done worse. By the end of this episode, they're going to do a lot worse. By 1844, Paraguay had a new leader. This was the dictator, excuse me, president, Carlos Antonio Lopez. Lopez was one of the few landowning elites that had survived Francia's rule, mainly by staying out of his way. Lopez was moody, petty, spiteful, and wore a huge feathered hat that he never removed for any reason. One of the things that everyone who met him noticed, not, this is just what everyone says, was that he was morbidly obese, with enormous slabs of chin fat concealing the collar of his army uniform. One observer described him as a great tidal wave of flesh, a veritable mastodon. I mean, okay, there's lots of reasons to dislike Antonio Lopez, but th this isn't fair. 19th century fat shamers did not pull punches. Antonio Lopez was like Francia in many ways. Absolute power, kills any rivals, as all church confessionals are basically places where he, people are spying on you, etc. But he was unlike Francia by being hilariously corrupt. Francia had destroyed the Paraguayan elite. Antonio Lopez created a new elite, that is, himself and his family. His wife Juana had the right to buy any livestock at a fixed rate so she could sell them for profit. The entire Lopez clan had enormous mansions and palaces, and his children and sons-in-law held all the major offices of the nation. His oldest son and chosen successor, Francisco Solano Lopez, commanded the army and was minister of war. His younger son, Venancio, was the admiral of the non-existent navy. His other son, Benigno, was the head of the church. Heavy taxes funded the Lopez clan and their lavish lifestyles. Antonio Lopez did ban slavery in 1842. Polite applause, that's good, it's you know, still like 25 years earlier than the United States. But somehow, 
like 10% of the country was still enslaved, including most of the not insignificant black population who were like 10% of the Paraguayan population is black. Like 50% of the land, which had been state owned, was privately owned by the Lopez family. It's good to be Los Lopez. But Antonio Lopez also differed from Francia because he began to open Paraguay up to the outside world. Francia had given Paraguay order. Lopez wanted to give it progress. He gained diplomatic recognition for his landlocked country and opened up trade routes down the Paraguay and Parana rivers. But most of all, Antonio Lopez wanted to modernize. He especially wanted modern weapons and the means to produce them, to build up Paraguay's military against the enemies that had always surrounded them. To do this, Lopez needed experts. He needed architects, doctors, engineers, scientists. But since Francia had, you know, banned college, Paraguay had no experts. They would have to import them from outside. So in 1853, Carlos Antonio Lopez sent a diplomatic mission to Europe to buy weapons, recruit experts, and make contact with European powers. This mission would be led by his oldest son and chosen successor, Francisco Solano Lopez. And we need to introduce this guy. Because Francisco Solano Lopez is the protagonist slash antagonist of our story. The man who would start and end the Paraguayan War. Francisco Solano Lopez was born in 1826 during the reign of Dr. Francia, the same year that his parents were married. There were rumors about his parentage from the get-go, with some saying, quietly, that Carlos wasn't his real father. Francisco was the oldest boy, with two younger brothers, Venancio and Benino, and two sisters, Rafaela and Innocencia. But Francisco was clearly being groomed as his father's successor, he was a brigadier general and minister of war at the age of 17, and in 1845 he had led Paraguayan forces on a brief expedition into Argentina. This small event seems to have given him the impression that he was a military genius. That is going to be another problem. Francisco Solano Lopez didn't look like much. He was short, pudgy, with a thick, dark mustache and beard. The most striking thing about him was apparently his really, really, really bad breath from his constant cigar smoking and poor personal hygiene. His teeth were black and rotted, like this was, this, this was a breath that did poison damage. So yeah, not exactly Antonio Banderas over here. Solano Lopez had grown up in luxury, spoiled, groomed as Paraguay's next dictator. Very few people told him no because daddy might have them killed. Solano Lopez had big appetites. He liked good food, good wine, good cigars, and beautiful women. Sometimes he took without asking, and that included the women. This included a young woman named Pancha Garmendia, who fought off Solano Lopez's attempted rape before his European trip. Yep, this is, this is a great, great hero for Paraguay. You might think that Solano Lopez was a spoiled rich kid who cared more about getting his rocks off than his responsibility, like a lot of dictators' sons. But in retrospect, that would have been better. Because Solano Lopez took himself very seriously. He was energetic, a hard worker, a big reader. He worked, he worked really hard. He had a strong sense of duty and responsibility. Lots of people were impressed by his will. What, some, what a later writer would call his uh, a fixity of purpose bordering on stupidity. So, 
sometimes that's a good thing in a leader. But any close examination of a historical figure involves a little armchair psychology. Historian James Sager believes that Solano Lopez's critical flaw was a lack of empathy. And this is important. We'll come back to this constantly. Solano Lopez didn't see other people as real. His ego was enormous, his pride easily wounded. He did things without considering how other people might react, including foreign leaders or military opponents. And he could not give less of a crap about the sacrifices other people made on his behalf because that was their place. He was the main character and everyone else was an NPC. Some have described him as a narcissist or sociopath. Add all these behaviors to the fact that he really believed in his duties to Paraguay. Solano Lopez saw Paraguay, his country and his people, as an extension of himself, as his property. He believed that he and his nation were one and the same. And that would drag him and his country into the abyss. If you haven't grasped it yet, I do not like this guy. I'm going to be constantly trashing this guy for the next, for the rest of the series. Right now, he's just a creep and a weirdo. He also turns out to be a coward, an incompetent military leader, and a competent political leader. And by the end of this series, the word I would use is monster. Francisco Solano Lopez arrived in Europe in 1853, a year that might ring a bell to longtime listeners of this podcast. Because Solano Lopez was arriving in Europe during the Crimean War. He even traveled to the Crimea to observe the Siege of Sevastopol, which gave him a strong impression of what modern military operations looked like. He may well have rubbed shoulders with many of our major characters from the Crimean War series. Solano Lopez made contacts in England, contracting with Blythe & Company to, pr- to build Paraguay's first real warship, the Taquari. Soon Blythe & Company was sending English engineers and machinists and technicians to South America, French merchants and Swiss doctors and Italian architects joined them, human adrenaline, European experts, to jumpstart Paraguay into the modern world. But this trip to Europe was more than just a fact-finding mission. It changed his life. Solano Lopez had grown up in a hermit kingdom, a landlocked republic, that many Europeans didn't even know existed. And he was dumbstruck by the power and the glory of London and Paris and Rome. He was blown away by the might of British industry under Queen Victoria and the courtly splendor of France under Napoleon III, famously the worst Napoleon. Solano Lopez wanted that power, wanted that glory, wanted the respect and authority of Napoleon III. Like many in his age, he was obsessed with the original Napoleon, the brilliance and the aura and the genius of Europe's great general. And for the future dictator of a small South American republic, a Napoleon obsession could be very, very dangerous. Solano Lopez was quoted as saying, Bravery, and only bravery, made Napoleon great. Um... That is the exact wrong lesson to take from Napoleon's career. I also, Solano Lopez, I encourage you to figure out what happened to Napoleon at the end of his career. But Paris was important for another reason. Because that was where Solano Lopez met her. She was Eliza Lynch, a 20-year-old Irish courtesan who targeted the young Latino tourist. 
Eliza was red-headed and beautiful, pale and shapely, and taller than her admirer. She smiled past his bad breath, you know, kudos, and his creepy behavior to take his arm and show him the City of Lights, Paris in its glory days. Solano Lopez was swept away by her wit and her manners and her knowledge of all things high culture. She was beauty, she was grace, she was art, she was music, she was Europe. And she was his. Eliza Lynch is one of the most controversial figures in South American history. She is a central character of the Paraguayan War, either as tragic heroine or evil succubus. There has been a lot written about her, good and bad. She is an immensely complicated woman. Her story is fascinating. So I have to do a short round about her. Probably between parts four and five of this series. I wrote 1,500 words. It was too much. I split it off. So somewhere down the road, look for The Many Lives of Madame Lynch. Francisco Solano Lopez returned to Paraguay in 1855 on board his brand spanking new warship, the Taquari. He was followed a month later by Eliza, who was already pregnant with their first child. She would set up in Asuncion where the Lopez family refused to acknowledge her. Eliza and Solano Lopez never married. She was a weird foreigner who acted like she was better than everyone else, and she wasn't his only mistress. But he loved her the most, as much as he could love anybody. I think he loved her more for what she represented, the power and glory of Europe. Eliza Lynch, referred to as Madame Lynch if you liked her and La Lynch if you didn't, became the new trendsetter for Paraguayan high society. Her artistic tastes, her musical talents, her knowledge of European cuisine and culture and manners became the hot new thing in Asuncion. She was the conduit beaming Victorian-era aesthetics into the dull Guarani society. Lover, hater, you couldn't ignore her. Foreign experts flooded into Paraguay. The great British engineer George Whitehead built a modern shipyard in Asuncion that started to pump out steamboats. A team of British engineers constructed an arsenal that could forge modern artillery. Other engineers built one of the first railroads in Latin America. One of the engineers who built this railroad is a central figure in our story. George Thompson remained close to Solano Lopez and served as his military engineer throughout the Paraguayan War and left a comprehensive memoir. <laughs> I need quotes, guys, and that's where I'm going to get a lot of them. Paraguay was modernizing. Healthcare improved. Telegraph lines connected the cities. Factories and mills rose from nothing. Antonio Lopez founded several newspapers, which were basically propaganda outlets with an almost psychotic level of nationalism and paranoia. This was all paid for by a sudden increase in trade, as yerba mate, tobacco, livestock, and sugarcane flowed out from the great estates of Paraguay, most of which still ran on slave labor. Antonio Lopez's greatest project was the massive fortress of Humaita, positioned at the intersection of the Paraguay and Parana rivers, studded with modern artillery. The fortress of Humaita was designed to dominate the rivers stretching into the heart of the continent. This is foreshadowing. Humaita is going to be the focus of an entire episode. Some were already calling it the Gibraltar of the South, or more ominously, the Sevastopol of America. Paraguay might have been a small landlocked South American republic, by 1864, it probably had about 400,000 inhabitants, only about as many as Virginia in that same time period. 
but it was highly prosperous for its size and modernizing fast. The military was surprisingly strong, and more than anyone else in South America, they believed they were unique, special. Not just a country, not just a state or a line on the map, they were a nation. This was Paraguay. Authoritarian, centralized, defensive, paranoid, united around a common belief in their collective identity. This unique nationalism set Paraguay apart from the rest of South America. I just spent a lot of time telling y'all about Paraguay for two big reasons. One, because Paraguay's unusual history will pe play a big role in the upcoming war. And two, because I wanted to set Paraguay up as a counterexample to its future opponents, the three countries that eventually became the Triple Alliance. Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay had very different experiences from Paraguay. They were also trying to build nations to find identity and unity now that they were independent from their colonial overlords. And they were not as successful. Let's start with Argentina, our resident hot mess. And I'm going to keep this pretty brief because Argentina was just an all-out chaos for the first 50 years of its existence. It almost drove me insane when I was researching this series. I could spend a full episode explaining all the Argentinian nonsense. Wait, who is this guy? There's another constitution? How many civil wars can one country have? And so forth. It is telling that it took Argentina 50 years to settle on the name for their freaking country. Originally, they were the United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata. In 1831, they became the Argentine Confederation. In 1853, they became the Argentine Republic with a new constitution. But then Buenos Aires seceded from Argentina, and they spent six years as separate countries, only for Buenos Aires to come back in 1859 after they got a new, new constitution. It's not looking great, guys. To keep things simple, I'm just going to call it Argentina throughout this whole thing. Argentina was very lightly populated for its size. When the Paraguayan War began in 1864, it only had about 1.4 million people almost all of whom lived in the north. The central and southern areas, known as Patagonia, had not been settled yet. They were still occupied by Indian tribes. Argentina's biggest exports were livestock, cattle and horses raised on the wide-open plains known as the Pampas. This country was almost lousy with horses. They were so common that if you travel through the countryside, you could find people begging for change from horseback. The most famous riders were the gauchos, the Argentine cowboys of the Pampas, who kept pushing the frontier south against the Indians. Very similar in many ways to the American West. We last saw Argentina with the Porteños, the elites of Buenos Aires, having just declared independence from Spain. The Porteños had a vision of a strong, unified La Plata state, naturally dominated by their city, the only big city in La Plata. But the provinces didn't agree with the rich urban elites of Buenos Aires. Paraguay was the first to split off, but they weren't the last. 
They were joined by Upper Peru, aka modern Bolivia, and the province of Banda Oriental, aka modern Uruguay, all of which seceded from Argentina. And the disintegration didn't stop there. Starting in 1814, Argentina was split between two major factions, the Centralists and the Federalists. The Centralists wanted a centralized, unified republic, a nation, which Buenos Aires would inevitably dominate. Not only was it the epicenter of culture and finance and influence and radical ideas, but it was also the only port city in Argentina, and it controlled La Plata. It was the gateway to the outside world. Control over the rivers was the main source of Porteño wealth and prestige, which the provinces always resisted. The Federalists wanted provincial autonomy. They were fighting for a confederation, with each Argentine province having equal say without Buenos Aires dominating everybody. The result was that these two factions, the Federalists and Centralists, waged almost non-stop civil wars for decades. Absolute dumpster on fire chaos. This is like what would happen to the United States if we had just stuck with the Articles of Confederation and never passed the Constitution. This level of chaos. And the leaders of both these factions were usually called caldillos. A caldillo is the Latino archetype of a charismatic military strongman, a depressingly common feature of Latin American politics in any stage of its history. <laughs> Caudillos were marked by an exaggerated masculinity, the machismo so famous in Latin American societies. Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, the famous Mexican dictator and arch-nemesis of the Alamo, is a classic example of a caudillo. The archetypal caudillo, literally the first image on the Wikipedia page for caudillo, was Juan Manuel de Rosas, the Federalist warlord of Buenos Aires. From 1829 to 1852, Rosas was basically the evil overlord of Argentina. He also rattled his saber at anyone outside Argentina, including Paraguay and Uruguay. Like many Argentines, Rosas saw them as wayward provinces who would eventually return to the fold of Buenos Aires. Juan Manuel de Rosas was aggressive, dangerous, and posed a threat to the whole of La Plata. And predictably, he had plenty of enemies. He drove most of the centralists into exile, but most of the other Federalist caldillos also resisted the Rosas regime. The hotbed of resistance lay north of Buenos Aires in the provinces of Corrientes and Entre Rios between the Parana and Uruguay rivers. These are going to be central terrain for, this, for the Paraguayan War, like they're where the first major campaigns are waged. These provinces were constantly in rebellion, often threatening to secede just like Paraguay. By the 1850s, a guy named Justo José de Urquiza, the caudillo of Entre Rios province, was the ringleader of the anti-Rosas resistance. He and Rosas were both Federalists, but for Urquiza, Federalism meant that all the provinces were equal. Rosas believed that Buenos Aires was more equal than the others. So Argentina was a collection of provinces that did not see themselves as part of a single nation. One Argentinian put it this way, the homeland for the Corentino is Corrientes, for the Cordobes, Cordoba, for the Tucumano, Tucuman, for the Porteño, Buenos Aires, for the Gaucho, the dirt upon which he was born. The life and common interests that make up the rational sentiment of homeland is an incomprehensible abstraction for them. 
the centralists, the nation builders, were out of power. As long as the Federalists reigned, Argentina would remain chaotic, fragmented, and weak. Brazil was better off than Argentina. They still had problems, but they had different problems, and they weren't all trying to murder each other. Brazil had a strange path to independence, a path that, like the rest of Latin America, starts with Napoleon. In 1807, Napoleon's armies invaded Portugal, causing the Portuguese monarchy to flee to their prosperous South American colony in Brazil. For the next 15 years, Portuguese King Joao VI made his court in Rio de Janeiro. This had two major consequences. First, the Braganza dynasty discovered that they really liked Brazil. It was beautiful and warm, much nicer than dreary old Lisbon. The second was that the Brazilians had gone from being a colony to being the center of the empire, and they didn't want to go back. Joao VI returned to Portugal in 1821, leaving his son Pedro to manage Brazil. But when Joao tried to bust Brazil back down to colonial status, Brazil declared independence in 1822 under Emperor Pedro I. So yeah, Joao's own son ran off with his freaking colony. Screw you, Dad. Brazil was the only Latin American country to remain a monarchy under the same dynasty post-independence. Weird, right? So that's why there was this thing called the Empire of Brazil. And the empire had an aristocracy. A whole freaking stable of counts and viscounts and dukes hanging out in tropical South America. These guys drew their wealth and status from the plantation economy. For centuries, Brazil's main export had been sugar, but by the middle of the 19th century, this was being overtaken by coffee. Brazil produced half the world's coffee, keeping New York and London and Istanbul awake way past their bedtimes. By the 1860s, the economy was booming. Brazil was even starting to lay railroads and build factories, taking its first steps into the industrial age. But even as Brazil entered the modern world, its economy was still dependent on the backwards practice of slavery. About 30% of Brazil's 10 million inhabitants were African slaves. And guys, I'll be real with you. Brazilian slavery was a couple of notches worse than the American South. If you've listened to this podcast for five seconds, you know I don't pull any punches when it comes to slavery in the United States. So when I say that conditions for Brazilian slaves were worse, I mean it. They died like flies from the sheer misery of the sugar plantations. It was appalling. So the old European racial hierarchy was still very much alive in Brazil, with the white nobility on top, the mestizos and mulattoes below them, and black people and Indians at the bottom. This was the main barrier to building a Brazilian nation. Brazil was a constitutional monarchy of 10 million people, only 2% of whom could vote, and the voting was usually rigged anyway. The Brazilian nobility was divided into conservative and liberal parties, with the liberals promoting social change and greater unity, while the conservatives feared any disruption of the social system. The only thing that bound them together, the trait they all shared, was allegiance to the Braganza dynasty. When Brazil looked around and asked, what is the thing that says who we are, they looked to the monarchy. And they were lucky to have the monarch they did. Pedro I had abdicated in 1831, leaving his five-year-old son Pedro II as Brazil's reigning emperor. But Pedro II, popularly known as Dom Pedro, 
grew up to become one of the rarest things in history. A real life, no joke, I'm not kidding, good monarch. Don Pedro was brilliant, well-learned, and cultured. He spoke 14 languages as he was a huge fan of education and the sciences. He once said, Were I not an emperor, I would like to be a teacher. I do not know of a task more noble than to direct young minds and prepare the men of tomorrow. And he meant it. Don Pedro wasn't just enlightened, he was a flaming liberal. He didn't even really like the monarchy that much. He promoted civil liberties and free speech and human rights and social reform. And in a country that ran on slavery, Pedro II was a freaking abolitionist. He freed all his own slaves and spent his entire life pushing for the end of slavery. Pedro II is legitimately one of the most admirable historical figures I have ever heard of. But his power to fix things was very limited. Brazil was a constitutional monarchy, and he had to deal with a stubborn nobility who resisted change and progress every step of the way. We will have a lot more to say about Pedro II, probably in a short round at the end of this series, based just to talk about this guy, because he's really fascinating. Slavery and the racial hierarchy weren't Brazil's only major roadblocks to nation-building. Don't know if you know this, but Brazil is enormous. It is a huge country. Brazil's, Brazil is larger than the 48 continental United States in land area. This massive size and its very difficult terrain made it hard for the central government to control the provinces. Brazil was constantly putting down rebellions. Some of them wanted a republican government instead of the monarchy, but a lot of them wanted to break away from Brazil, just like in Argentina. The most dangerous was the Ragamuffin War from 1835 to 1845 in Rio Grande do Sul. This was Brazil's southernmost province on the border with Uruguay. This rebellion lasted a decade. It almost started separatist rebellions in a bunch of other provinces. Rio Grande almost succeeded. Then there was the distant interior province of Mato Grosso. Mato Grosso had some of the most fertile land in Brazil, as well as extremely promising deposits of gold and diamonds. The problem was, Mato Grosso was over a thousand miles from Rio de Janeiro. Getting there overland took months. And this led Brazil to La Plata. The Paraguay River was the only water route to Mato Grosso. The, Par the Parana River gave access to Goiás and Minas Gerais and the Uruguay River was the main water route to the rebellious province of Rio Grande del Sul. But access to all these rivers could be blocked by Argentina. Access to Mato Grosso could be blocked by Paraguay. For Brazil to develop its vast interior, to build its nation, it needed the rivers. Just as the United States needed the mighty Mississippi, Brazil needed La Plata. Like Paraguay and Argentina, the rivers were its national destiny. Uruguay had problems. Problems that made Argentina look downright lucky. Like Paraguay, Uruguay broke away from Argentina in 1810. But that is where the similarities end. Not all Guays are created equal. Uruguay couldn't hide out like Paraguay did for one very big reason. Its capital, Montevideo, was on the other side of La Plata, just across the street from Buenos Aires. Control over Uruguay meant partial control over La Plata, so you can see where this is going. Uruguay would spend the next 50 years being pulled back and forth between Brazil and Argentina. 
Brazil invaded Uruguay in 1816 and tried to annex it. This caused Argentina to intervene. This resulted in the Cisplatine War of 1825 to 1828, which only ended when the British intervened. The British did this mainly because they didn't want any one country to completely control La Plata. That would just be bad for business. The Brazilians and Argentinians both withdrew, leaving behind the, theoretically, independent Republic of Uruguay. But Uruguay immediately collapsed into civil war. The liberal elites, the Colorados, were concentrated in Montevideo, the center of commerce and European influence, while the conservative Caldillos, the Blancos, dominated the countryside. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's just a miniature version of the whole Argentina train wreck. The Blancos and the Colorados waged an extremely nasty little civil war for decades, where throat cutting was the main form of execution. It became almost ritualized with how many times people did it. The reason these civil wars kept going was that Brazil and Argentina kept them going. Argentine dictator Juan Manuel de Rosas supported the Blancos. Brazil supported the Colorados. Both of them were fighting over La Plata. This led to a complete breakdown of order in Uruguay, just absolute anarchy, which bubbled over the border into Brazil and Argentina's neighboring provinces. So Uruguay never had the chance to build a nation. They were like a child in a bitter divorce, constantly pulled between larger powers that exploited their divisions. There was no path to unity for a small nation like Uruguay until the question of La Plata was settled. The struggle over Uruguay boiled over again in 1851, when Argentine dictator Juan Manuel de Rosas came within a hair of conquering the country. Brazil could no longer ignore the threat Rosas posed to the whole region and began to organize an alliance against him. And like everyone piled on, everyone Rosas had ever pissed off, which was a lot of people, including like half of Argentina itself. The Argentine rebels were led by Justo José de Urquiza, the rebellious warlord of Entre Rios. In the Platine War from 1851 to 1852, Brazil and Urquiza's Argentine rebels joined forces to overthrow Rosas and send him fleeing into exile. Brazil had confirmed its status as the strongest power in South America. And since Rosas had been closing off La Plata whenever he wanted, his defeat allowed La Plata to be opened up, giving Paraguay access to the outside world. But Argentina and Uruguay remained in chaos. The Uruguayan civil wars continued. Urquiza, the, the warlord, achieved dominance over Argentina for like five seconds before it collapsed back into civil war. The dream of unity, of progress, of nation seemed farther away than ever. So this is the situation on the verge of the Paraguayan War. Brazil, large and in charge, politically fragile and almost too big to function. Argentina, divided between the provinces and the capital. Uruguay, pulled this way and that by the great powers of South America. Unstable countries entering the modern world, trying in vain to build nations. And now you can see how different Paraguay was. Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay were divided decentralized, consumed by racial chaos and political disorder. Contrast with Paraguay, totally centralized, totally united, ethnically homogenous, with zero internal conflicts. Whatever stupid dictator shenanigans Francia and Antonio Lopez had gotten up to, they had built a strong, 
prosperous little nation in the heart of South America. Paraguayans, from the dictator down to the lowest farmer, were proud of their unique identity, their Hispano-Guarani heritage, the collective project that was the nation of Paraguay. But there's one element of the Paraguayan psyche I keep bringing up, the feeling of being surrounded by enemies. Paraguay had always been very defensive-minded, very paranoid. And, you know, looking at the Category 5 hurricane of mayhem that was the rest of South America, they had a point. It's not paranoia if they are out to get you. Paraguay had tense relationships with its neighbors, and a lot of this had to do with borders. This is another chapter in the long, stupid history of Europeans being really bad at drawing colonial borders. The old borders between the Spanish and Portuguese colonies, or the province of Paraguay with the other provinces of La Plata, had never been clear. So Paraguay had territorial disputes with both Brazil and Argentina, disputes that remained unresolved into the 1860s. This is where those maps are going to be really helpful. Paraguay had two territorial disputes with Argentina. One was the province of Misiones on the eastern border between the Parana and Uruguay rivers. The other dispute was over the Gran Chaco, the large, almost deserted area west of the Paraguay River. Carlos Antonio Lopez tried to settle these disputes diplomatically, but since Argentina changed governments like every other week, he was unsuccessful. On the other hand, a weak and divided Argentina was also less of a threat. The Lopez family had a close relationship with the Argentine Caudillo, Justo José de Urquiza. He was their buddy, and he was a Federalist, not a Centralist, so they supported him. A united Argentine nation, if such a thing ever arose, would give Paraguay reason to worry. Carlos was much more worried about Brazil. Now, Brazil had been the first country to recognize Paraguayan independence in 1844, and during the Platine War, Paraguay had supported Brazil against their common enemy Rosas. But Brazil and Paraguay had issues involving the rivers. Brazil wanted to develop and settle its inland provinces, especially Mato Grosso, but they could only get there via the Paraguay River. And Antonio Lopez was not super cool with giving Brazil right of passage through Paraguayan territory. The Paraguay River runs right through the center of Paraguay. Brazil and Paraguay also had a border dispute over a little triangle of territory between the Apa and Bronco rivers. And there were small skirmishes along this border, one of which almost started a war in 1855. This war scare ended with Antonio Lopez giving limited river access to a few Brazilian steamboats per year. American diplomat Charles Washburn described Antonio Lopez's view of Brazil. He wants the old question of boundaries settled and complains that Brazil is crowding upon him all the time and will not come to a settlement. He has a bitter hatred of the Brazilians and a contempt of them as soldiers, and in speaking of them, usually calls them macacos, or monkeys. The newspapers in Asuncion constantly portrayed Brazilians as a great mass of Negro savages, a barbarian horde, with Pedro II as the head monkey. Paraguayans had a very racialized, borderline hysterical fear of Brazil. Many people saw war with Brazil not just as a danger, but an inevitability, like it was gonna happen sooner or later. The English engineer George Thompson, working for the Paraguayan government, 
believed that war with Brazil was inevitable starting from 1856. But Brazil had no aggressive intentions towards Paraguay. They just wanted river access. Brazil actually wanted Paraguay strong and independent to counterbalance Argentina, which Brazil saw as the real threat. But they also refused to back down on the border dispute. Like, all those border territories I just described, like, no one lived there. They weren't really that important, not even economically. Everyone was ready to throw down over little bits of territory that shouldn't even have mattered. But for these new nations, those little bits of territory were a matter of pride and honor. This macho posturing and sword-waving was a way of proving their right to exist, their nation's right to hold its territory. It might help to think of them as teenage countries. Teenagers start fights over stupid crap all the time. These borders, these lines in the sand where this is my nation and this is your nation, were super important in their minds. The border disputes and the river disputes would not cause the Paraguayan War, but they would create the conditions for it. The fluid borders, shifting political alliances, breakaway provinces, civil wars, all created an atmosphere of instability and mistrust. And for Paraguay, this environment was dangerous. They only had a population of like 400,000 people. Argentina was over three times larger at 1.4 million. And Brazil was a sleeping giant of over 10 million, a massive, dangerous neighbor. Paraguay might be relatively strong and unified, but if the crap hit the fan, it was going to be in serious danger. Paraguay's first two dictators, Dr. Francia and Antonio Lopez, knew how vulnerable their nation was. So they built up the military, strengthened their defenses, and did their best to stay out of the way. Francia might have been crazy, Antonio Lopez might have been corrupt, but they were cautious, they were clever, and they knew their country's limitations. Paraguay would not get so lucky with its third dictator. In mid-August 1862, Francisco Solano Lopez was inspecting Humaita, the great fortress designed to dominate the Paraguay River, when he got a telegram from Asuncion. The dictator was gravely ill, and he was calling for his eldest son. Francisco Solano Lopez arrived at his father's deathbed, flanked by his brothers, his sisters, and his weeping mother. With his last ounce of strength, the old dictator looked at his son and gave him words of wisdom on the future of Paraguay. There are many pending questions. Do not try to solve them by the sword, but by the pen. Basically, do not use warfare, use diplomacy. Carlos clasped Francisco's arm, his eyes dark with warning, as he said his final words. Not by the sword, but by the pen. Especially with Brazil. A few minutes later, on September 10, 1862, Carlos Antonio Lopez died. The transition was quick and virtually uncontested. Surrounded by his soldiers, their bayonets gleaming, with Madame Lynch looking on, Francisco Solano Lopez was confirmed as President of the Paraguayan Republic. A man who had always gotten everything he wanted, with visions of glory, an egotist and narcissist and borderline sociopath who saw his country as an extension of himself, and he had South America's only nation-state united behind him. 
in two years, Francisco Solano Lopez would do the one thing his father had told him not to do. He would take up the sword against Brazil, and he would launch the Paraguayan War. Okay guys, we are finally ready for the lead-up to the Paraguayan War, said lead-up taking place from 1861 to 1865. Yes, the rest of this episode happens simultaneously with the American Civil War. We really get going on the war just as the American Civil War is ending. And we can also call the rest of this episode, How Francisco Solano Lopez Made the Single Worst Set of Foreign Policy Decisions in Modern History. Except for maybe Hitler, but it's close. Strap in, y'all. The first big event that led to the Paraguayan War was the end of the Argentine Civil Wars. On September 17, 1861, a couple months after the Battle of Bull Run in the Civil American Civil War, the Argentine Centralists defeated Justo José de Arquiza's Federalists at the Battle of Pavón. The Centralists went on to found a new, unified Argentine Republic, the last time Argentina would change its name. And it was led by Bartolomé Mitre. Mitre is going to lead Argentina into the Paraguayan War, and he will be the supreme commander of the Triple Alliance. So we need to talk about this dude just a second. Bartolomé Mitre was a man of many talents. He was a legendary writer, doing journalism, history, poetry. He was a maniac. Mitre was also a liberal a centralist who had spent years in exile during the Rosas regime for saying the wrong things. He was also a very experienced soldier. He had fought in the Uruguayan Civil Wars and the Platine War, and, of course, he defeated the legendary Urquiza at the Battle of Pavon. Urquiza didn't think much of Mitre. He called him a paper general, like because he was a bookish, kind of nerdy-looking guy. He was very intellectual. And Mitre's like, well, this paper general beat you, so what does that say? Finally, Mitre was a nation-builder. He had a dream of a vibrant, powerful, centralized Argentina, with public education and sanitation and railways and voting and free speech and all that good stuff. One reporter described him this way. General Mitre is a man of talent, a good politician, and one of the finest generals from Mexico to Cape Horn. He is negligent of dress, but of strict morals, and full of a sense of justice and brave beyond parallel. And on October 12, 1862, Bartolomé Mitre became the first president of the new centralist Argentine Republic. But his new government was still vulnerable. The provincial caudillos still resisted the dominance of Buenos Aires. Urquiza was still holding up out in Entre Rios, defeated but still a force to be reckoned with. And countries like Brazil and Paraguay were kinda worried about a strong centralized Argentina. No one could be sure that a new era had truly dawned. Look at the last 50 years. Mitre could be overthrown within the year. The paint was still not dry on centralist Argentina. Something was about to pop off. But not in Argentina. In Uruguay. 
The Uruguayan civil wars were in a rare phase of quiet, with the Blancos currently on top. But Mitre had been a long ally of the Colorados, the Blancos' eternal enemies. The leader of the Colorados was, alright, our last big major character, Venancio Flores. Flor Venancio Flores was a classic caldillo, a hard-riding, hard-drinking Uruguayan gaucho, a cowboy with an enormous black mustache. He had a bad habit of being reckless and crazy and almost getting killed all the time. American diplomat Charles Washburn described Flores. Crafty, cruel, and ignorant, all his tastes and instincts found true indulgence as a leader of banditti. Like, this guy is a classic bandit leader looking dude from a western movie. Despite being very different people, Bartolome Mitre and Venancio Flores were ride-or-die homies. Mitre had fought beside Flores in the Uruguayan Civil Wars, and Flores had fought beside Mitre at the Battle of Pavon. So when Flores said, hey bro, help me out so I can go fight the Blancos in my home country, Mitre was like, sure dude, here's some guns and money, go have fun. So on April 19, 1863, Flores crossed over into Uruguay and reignited the Civil War. Now, based on everything we just learned about international relations in South America, you might expect Brazil to back the Blancos up against the Argentine-backed Colorados. That was how the game had been played forever. But Brazil was mad at the Blancos. Lots of Brazilians from Rio Grande do Sul had been settling recently along the Uruguayan border. They also brought their slaves, even though slavery was illegal in Uruguay. Oh, and they kept launching armed raids into Uruguay to recover runaway slaves, sometimes just kidnapping random black people. But when the Blancos tried to crack down on this nonsense, the settlers asked for support from the Brazilian Empire. Brazil backed the settlers, not just because they were B Brazilian by default. It had only been a couple of decades since that state of Rio Grande do Sul had tried to secede from the empire. If the government failed to back them up and protect them from the Blancos, they might try again. It might undermine the Brazilian nation-building project. So in late 1863, the Brazilian government also began to support the Colorados. So now everyone's like, hey, uh, are, are Brazil and Argentina working together? Y'all just spent 50 years backing different parties in Uruguay, but now for the first time you're both backing one party, the Colorados. That's weird. So this obviously put the Blancos in a bit of a pickle. They had their backs to the wall. Brazil was against them, Argentina was against them, Flores was riding around outside Montevideo, pulling his finger across his throat. They even asked Urquiza for help. Urquiza said, no, buzz off. The Blancos had only one option left, one other power that might assist them. Help us, Francisco Solano Lopez. You're our only hope. Now, Here's the really important thing about this. There was no good reason for Paraguay to get involved in Uruguay. None whatsoever. The two countries were not allies. It served no strategic purpose. There was no history of this. It wasn't Paraguay's business. Yes, Argentina and Brazil have been dipping their fingers in that fondue for ages, which wasn't cool and had done enormous damage to Uruguay. Yes, Argentina and Brazil have been messing around Uruguay forever, but at least they had a strategic reason. Paraguay had no interest, had nothing to gain from this. And getting involved was dangerous. Dr. Francia and Carlos Lopez had had a 
cautious defensive foreign policy, where neutrality and non-intervention were the keystones of Paraguayan diplomacy. We are a small landlocked republic. We have to be careful. We have to stay out of the way of the big powers. So they steered clear of Uruguay. There ain't nothing in there we need to be involved in. But Francisco Solano Lopez saw things differently. We've talked about Lopez's ambitions, his ego, his dreams of glory, and since he saw Paraguay as an extension of himself, he applied those ambitions to his country. Paraguay was a powerful, energetic young nation with a strong military and a thriving economy. Lopez believed they had been on the sidelines long enough. Time for Paraguay to take its place as the third great power player in La Plata, the third wheel to Brazil and Argentina. But it's Paraguay. It's a tiny little country. And recent events had also fed Paraguay's traditional paranoia. Paraguayan foreign policy had relied on playing Brazil and Argentina off against each other, alongside allying with one or the other of Argentina's Federalist warlords, because it was decentralized. Argentina's recent unification was bad enough, but now Brazil and Argentina seem to be working together to dominate Uruguay. Maybe Paraguay was next on the menu. Lopez was starting to see a coalition of enemies lining up against him. What would Napoleon do? In July 1863, just around the time of the Battle of Gettysburg, Blanco representatives from Uruguay arrived in Asuncion to ask for Lopez's assistance. And they pitched it to make it seem like their problems were also his problems. That if the Blanco regime fell, Paraguay would be next. And this was music to Lopez's ears. He decided it was time to get involved. Now, Lopez didn't necessarily want a war. He would be just as happy to play peacemaker, because that would still make him feel important. So in September 1863, Lopez sent a message to Mitre, demanding that Argentina explain its activities in Uruguay. And now we discover another fun aspect of Francisco Solano Lopez, a talent for making the worst possible decision in every situation because he decided to um, send Mitre copies of all his diplomatic messages with the Blancos. Guys, you're not supposed to do that in diplomacy. You're not supposed to just show your texts to everyone else. The Blancos were obviously like, what are you doing? That's private diplomatic correspondence. And that's a really good question. What was Lopez doing? Uh, maybe he thought it would make him look honest, or maybe he just didn't understand diplomacy. Mitre blew Lopez off. When Lopez offered to mediate the crisis in Uruguay, Mitre said, One might as well invoke the mediation of China. The newspapers in Buenos Aires mocked Lopez, poking fun at his appearance and his Irish prostitute and his backwards little country, which they had always seen as a backwater full of ignorant mestizos. Go home, little country. The big boys are playing. Ooh, Lopez wasn't just being ignored, he was being insulted. By now, Lopez had gotten it into his head that he had to be involved. Some idiot had taught him the phrase, balance of power, and that was his new favorite saying, balance of power, balance of power. Basically, Brazil and Argentina are working together. The smaller nations and any breakaway Argentine provinces like Corrientes and Entre Rios need to band together to restore the balance of power. So Lopez started talking with Justo José de Urquiza, the Argentine Federalist Caldillo. 
Lopez wanted Urquiza to join him and Uruguay in an alliance that would thwart the ambitions of both Brazil and Buenos Aires, a third axis in La Plata, centered on Paraguay, to restore the balance of power. Urquiza had always been very friendly to the Lopez family, they had been very close, but he was playing his own game, so he said, maybe later. And now events were moving very quickly, because by May 1864, the Brazilian government was preparing to intervene directly in Uruguay. The Brazilian settlers were begging for assistance, and the Brazilian parliament was in an uproar. The newspapers screamed about the crimes and abuses of the Blancos, depicting their behavior as an insult to Brazil, a national outrage, a matter of national honor. So Don Pedro's ministers asked him to take a harder line against Uruguay. The emperor was not warlike, but he could sense the national mood and reluctantly agreed. Brazil sent diplomats to Montevideo to demand compensation and public apologies for the damages to Brazilian citizens. If the Blancos had done that, it might have ended the crisis right then and there. But they still counted on Paraguay to come to their rescue. They played Solano Lopez like a fiddle, flattering him, appealing to his ego. Look, Brazil's trying to push us around. You're the only one that can stop them. You have to restore the balance of power. Stop the large countries from bullying the small countries. Be the hero. And Lopez wanted to be a hero. By now, he was convinced that the fate of Paraguay was bound to the fate of Uruguay. Based on what evidence just his own mind. Like, seriously, there's no justification for this. But, but now he was trying to portray himself as a crusader for the rights of small nations, standing up to bullies, like he was Captain America or something. But you are not Captain America. You were like pre-experiment Captain America when he was scrawny and got his butt kicked all the time. You're not a big power. You're not a great power. You're Paraguay. Lopez hoped Argentina might force Brazil to back down like Argentina-Brazil, their traditional enemies. But Bartolomé Mitre blessed off on the Brazilian intervention. Hey, you guys are going to help out my boy Flores? You guys are all clear. But Mitre did not want to get directly involved. Argentina was in no shape for war, the new government was still fragile, and Mitre was afraid of what Urquiza might do. So when Brazil was like, hey, hey Argentina, you want to invade Uruguay together? Mitre said, nah guys, I got enough problems, maybe we'll catch the next war. Rain check? Side note, it was at about this time that the British government tried to play peacemaker. Britain was constantly just messing around in Latin America throughout the 19th century. They were the global economic superpower. This is just British business as usual. They wanted everyone to calm down because all this war and all this tension was bad for business. There was this big meeting where the local British representatives sat down with diplomats from Brazil and Argentina and both Uruguayan factions to try and reach a compromise. Note, they don't care about Paraguay. Paraguay is not at this meeting. The meeting didn't work, but it has bred conspiracy theories ever since. Some historians believe that Britain was behind everything, the cause of everything, that they orchestrated this whole crisis to try and destroy Paraguay, because Paraguay refused to open its markets to free trade. This is a really big thing for leftist historians, because they want to blame the Paraguayan war on the evils of colonialism and capitalism. No, not, not at all. You can blame the British Empire and capitalism for many, many things, 
but the Paraguayan War is not one of them. You can maybe blame colonialism, but that would be the Spanish and Portuguese for coming over and drawing all these stupid borders in the first place. If you're going to blame anyone for the war, <laughs> well, we'll get there. Moving on. On August 4th, 1864, Brazil gave the Blancos an ultimatum. We demand immediate action to compensate our citizens for their losses. You have six days. When the Blancos refused, Brazilian troops gathered on Uruguay's northern border. Solano Lopez decided he had to step up before it was too late. On August 30th, 1864, Lopez issued an ultimatum of his own. The government of the Republic of Paraguay would consider any occupation of Uruguayan territory by imperial forces as an attack upon the balance of power of the Platine states, which interests the Republic of Paraguay as the guarantee of its security, peace, and prosperity. The government protests in the most solemn manner against such an act, disclaiming at once all responsibility for the ultimate consequences. Short version. Brazil, back down, or you'll answer to us. This was an enormous mistake. Lopez had already forgotten his father's last words. Do not solve your problems with the sword, especially with Brazil, the last country you should piss off. Brazil had no reason to mess with Paraguay, but somehow, Paraguay had invented a reason to mess with Brazil. And war fever swept the Paraguayan nation. Solano Lopez called out his army, mustered the reserves, and concentrated in huge camps along the Paraguay River. He ordered massive public ceremonies all over the country to demonstrate his nation's power. Lopez himself led a parade through the decorated streets of Asuncion, with fireworks illuminating the skies overhead. He and Eliza Lynch sat on thrones as the army officers and ministers of state crowded around them in brilliant European-style uniforms. Speech after speech confirmed the courage and honor of Paraguay. And this spectacle was repeated over and over and over, literally multiple days in a row all over the country. If Lopez wasn't around, everyone saluted his portrait instead. Stupid dictator shenanigans. The British engineer, George Thompson, remembered the celebrations. A body of the chief men of Asuncion went to the palace and declared their adhesion. They hoisted the Paraguayan flag under a salute of 21 guns, and afterwards all the town took to dancing, drinking, and serenading. By order, of course. Everyone, high and low, was obliged to assist at these frolics, under pain of being reported by the police as unpatriotic. Written manifestos were made up and signed by everyone, offering their lives and goods to sustain the cause. This was supposed to be intimidating, a show of Paraguayan strength and unity, but it had the opposite effect. Brazil and Argentina thought this was hilarious. The Buenos Aires newspapers joked that they'd been affected with the dancing plague and insulted Solano Lopez as a barbarian tyrant of uncertain parentage. Newspapers in Rio de Janeiro recommended that Lopez attend to the state of his huts and settle the squabbles of his half-naked squalls at home. Finally, the Brazilian government rejected Lopez's ultimatum out of hand. Go home, little country. The big boys are playing. Lopez also decided to publish more of his correspondence with the Blancos in the Paraguayan newspapers. I... I don't know what this was supposed to accomplish. Again, you're not supposed to do that in diplomacy. 
This caused more mockery, more insults, and more blows to Solano Lopez's very fragile ego. But he still failed to take decisive action. Uruguay begged for a military alliance, but he refused to put anything in writing. Now this was really, really stupid, because it might have been the only thing that could have stopped the war at this point, the only way to show Brazil that he was serious. But Solano Lopez didn't comprehend how his actions looked to others. He lacked the essential empathy. His erratic, inconsistent behavior, like back, you know, threatening them backing away, threatening them backing away, made everyone else think that he wasn't serious. That was everyone else's mistake. Solano Lopez was deadly serious. All he wanted, all his country wanted, was to be treated with respect. But Argentina mocked his offer to mediate. Brazil dismissed his ultimatum. His honor had been impugned, and the insults to his country had continued unabated. But Solano Lopez had completely misread the situation. Paraguay just wasn't in the same weight class as Brazil and Argentina. It was trying to be in it, but it just wasn't, and somehow he failed to understand this. Solano Lopez believed he was the main character, a military and political genius like his hero Napoleon, and he didn't understand why everyone else failed to play their parts in the story. Brazil was supposed to back down. Argentina was supposed to let him mediate. The newspapers were supposed to admire him, fear him, respect him. And when they didn't, well, maybe he would have to make them. If the other nations of La Plata wouldn't give Paraguay respect, they would have to take it. It is only fair to point out that Brazil and Argentina also misread the situation. Yes, Lopez was an irrational actor who thought Paraguay was much more important than it was, but they should have accounted for that. They had been pushing all Paraguay's historic and strategic panic buttons for the last couple years and laughed every time Solano Lopez said anything about it. Yes, he might have been crazy, but crazy people can be dangerous. They wouldn't be laughing at him in a few months. Because Solano Lopez's army was mobilizing. By August 1864, he would have 30,000 men under arms with 14,000 reserves on standby. Let's put this in perspective. That was more men than the entire combined armies of Brazil and Argentina. Paraguay had a huge army for its small size. Brazil and Argentina should have paid at least a little attention to that. So they had all made mistakes. War is always a mistake. Someone screws up and thousands of people pay the price. Yes, Francisco Solano Lopez screwed up the most, but he was giving off clear danger signs and everyone ignored them. The big boys were playing. What was a little country going to do? On October 16, 1864, Brazilian forces crossed the Uruguayan border. Solano Lopez's bluff had been called, but still he hesitated. In the first weeks of November, a Brazilian steamboat, the Marques de Olinda, was traveling up the Paraguay River. It was a routine trip. The Marques was one of the small boats that, by treaty, Brazil was allowed to send through Paraguay. It was part of Brazil's project to colonize and develop the distant Mato Grosso province. Its passengers included Mato Grosso's new governor, as well as some soldiers, some colonists, along with a whole bunch of weapons for the Brazilian army. This was just a routine trip. On November 11th, the Marques de Olinda docked at Asuncion, took on coal, and began steaming north for Brazilian territory. The Blanco diplomat in Asuncion was like, look, Mr. President, that ship, 
Go get them. If you're going to fight Brazil, if you're going to show them you're ready to fight, here's your chance. But Lopez waited another day to make his decision. I think he was finally realizing just how dangerous the situation was. Maybe his father's last words were still ringing in his ears. But he talked too much smack to back down now. It was time to put up or shut up. And if he shut up, no one would ever take him or Paraguay seriously again. The English engineer George Thompson remembered Lopez saying, If we don't have a war with Brazil now, we shall have one at a less convenient time for ourselves. If Paraguay believed that war with Brazil was inevitable, maybe starting the war on their terms was their only chance for victory. So Lopez ordered the Taquari, the pride and joy of his fleet, the ship he had personally bought in and sailed from England, to chase down the Marques de Olinda. Captain Reynino Cabral took the Taquari upriver to intercept the Brazilian steamer. On November 13, 1864, he fired a shot across its bow, the first shot of the Paraguayan War. The Marques de Olinda surrendered without a fight. Its cargo was seized, its crew marched into a captivity, very few of them would survive, and the Brazilian flag was turned into a rug in Lopez's office where he could wipe his feet with it. Stupid dictator shenanigans. The Republic of Paraguay was now at war with the Empire of Brazil. The seizure of the Marques de Olinda began Paraguay's war with Brazil, so we can start calling this the Paraguayan War. But this wasn't the war of the Triple Alliance. Not yet. Lopez's actions were emotional and reckless, but he had issued an ultimatum on behalf of Uruguay, which had been illegally invaded by Brazil. For a Casas belly, this was pretty decent. It might be rash, but it wasn't insane. Not yet. We'll get there. But now Lopez had a problem. Brazil was invading Uruguay, and he was at war with Brazil with the stated purpose of coming to Uruguay's rescue. But how was he going to get there? His army couldn't march to Uruguay without passing through Argentina. His navy could move down the Paraguay and Paraná rivers, but oh yeah, that would mean passing through La Plata, which was controlled by Buenos Aires. Solano Lopez couldn't get to the war he had just entered. Like, what's your plan? He, he didn't have a plan. He was Solano Lopez. So with no other targets in sight, Solano Lopez ordered his military to prepare for an invasion of Mato Grosso. If you'll remember, this is that very distant Brazilian province to the north of Paraguay. The Brazilian garrison there was small, it would be an easy victory, and there were a lot of weapons and supplies that Paraguay could capture and use. Now, Mato Grosso was in the opposite direction from Uruguay. So Lopez was like, hey guys, look, I'm helping. And the Blancos are like, wait, wh where are you going? That's the wrong way. Come help us. Lopez is like, I'm helping. Yeah, okay. You get the feeling that Lopez isn't a good general? Oh, it gets worse. The invasion of Mato Grosso would be a two-pronged attack. 
Colonel Vicente Barrios was the uh, brother-in-law of Lopez, the husband of his sister Innocencia. He would take 3,000 troops by steamboat up the Paraguay River. Colonel Francisco Isidoro Resquin would lead the land force, a couple thousand cavalry to seize the major towns. Both these guys are going to be significant military figures throughout the war. More on them later. Solano Lopez saw his troops off on December 14th, 1864. He gave a bombastic speech spelling out the justification for the war and what they were expected to accomplish. Soldiers, my endeavors to keep the peace have been fruitless. The empire of Brazil, not knowing our valor and enthusiasm, provokes us to war, which challenge we are bound by our honor and dignity to accept in protection of our dearest rights. Soldiers and sailors, march serenely to the field of honor where, gathering glories for your country and fame for yourselves, you may show the world what the Paraguayan soldier is worth. That last bit. Show the world what the Paraguayan soldier is worth. Wasn't that the real reason for this war? The bands played as the Paraguayan armada set out on the invasion of Brazil. At that exact moment, a world away, Sherman's armies were marching through Georgia. The end of the American Civil War was in sight. The Paraguayans would make Sherman's soldiers seem positively restrained when it came to their treatment of the civilian population. Now it's time to introduce our second running theme in this series. We also have, we already have stupid dictator shenanigans. Now we have Welcome to Jackass, Paraguayan War Edition. We'll see a lot more of this in part two. We'll really dig into it in part two. But the armies of the Paraguayan War were really bad at war. They lacked like very basic competence or even a bare minimum of tactical sense. There's only one guy in this entire series who really knows what he's doing, and he doesn't show up until part four. This war will have some of the most stupid, insane, downright brain-wormed military decisions we have ever seen in this podcast. Hence, welcome to Jackass, Paraguayan War Edition. Example A. On December 26th, Colonel Barrios, Lopez's brother-in-law, arrived outside the Brazilian fort of Nova Coimbra with his force of 3,000 soldiers and five steamboats. Nova Coimbra was manned by only 115 Brazilian soldiers with 40 guns. There were also about 70 camp followers, women inside the fort. The fort was well-positioned, ringed with 14-foot-high stone walls, and with only one way to attack it by land from the south. Barrios set up his artillery on the other side of the river and offered the Brazilians a chance to surrender. This was all news to Lieutenant Colonel Hermenegildo Porticariero, what a name, Hermenegildo Porticariero, who had not known that Paraguay was at war with Brazil at all. This was the first he was hearing of it. So when Barrios told him to surrender, he was like, what? What? No. Barrios's artillery opened fire and the Brazilians responded. The capybaras and monkeys had the good sense to flee the sudden maelstrom of shot that ripped apart the jungle. The two sides spent most of December 27th wailing away at each other to no effect. And on December 28th, the Brazilian flag still flew. Alright, I guess the infantry are going to have to attack the fort. But as the Paraguayan infantry charged the fortress from the south, they ran into two big problems. 
first, the Brazilians had planted a lot of cacti, rows of cactus along this approach to stop any attack, and which Barrios did not know about because he had done no reconnaissance. No one does reconnaissance in this war. So the Paraguayan soldiers had to carve a path through the cactus with their bayonets and knives and hands, ow, 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 while they were being shot at. Many of them collapsed from heat stroke or from, you know, being blown up. Then they reached the fortress and it got worse. George Thompson recounted the experience. Although exposed to a terrible fire of grape and musketry, the Paraguayans ultimately reached the walls, but they could not scale them, having taken no ladders with them. They also lost many men by the hand grenades that the garrison threw upon them. Seven men did scale the wall and got in, but they were immediately overpowered and the remainder retreated. You forgot the ladders? You're attacking a fortress with 14-foot-high walls and you forgot the ladders? Step one, we get through the cactus. Step two, uh, 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 get this. The Paraguayans did try to, like, human pyramid their way up the wall, like a cheerleading competition or something. But this got a bunch of them shot, obviously, and they retreated. By the end of the day, the Paraguayans had suffered 42 killed and 164 wounded. The Brazilians had suffered zero casualties. The women inside the fort had literally been making artillery ammunition with rocks. And they're like, we, we won? Like, come on, guys. The Brazilians are almost out of ammo. What are you doing? Welcome to Jackass, Paraguayan War Edition. The next day, December 29th, the Paraguayans attacked again. And they actually brought ladders this time. The infantry ran forward under a heavy bombardment and scaled the walls and found the fort empty. Overnight, the Brazilians had hopped on a couple of steamboats and slipped away, totally unnoticed. They were long gone. The Paraguayans captured a few cannon, and that was the Battle of Nova Coimbra, which was, of course, celebrated as a massive heroic Paraguayan victory, cheered all over the country with parties and fireworks. To be fair, this would be one of the only Paraguayan victories of the war, so, uh, enjoy it while you can, guys. Meanwhile, Reskin's cavalry rode into the interior, finding most of the towns abandoned. The local Brazilian settlers had gotten word that the Paraguayans were coming, and they headed for the hills. And they were smart, because civilians in the path of the Paraguayan army had a bad time. Lopez's soldiers looted and plundered and generally behaved like douchebags everywhere they went. For example, Colonel Barrios continued sailing up the Paraguay River on his steamboats, and he captured the towns of Albuquerque and Corumba. These towns were thoroughly ransacked. Everything was taken, including the rape of any women who didn't run away fast enough. Barrios did not set a good example. He took anything remotely valuable and sent it back as a Christmas present for Solano Lopez, including fistfuls of stolen jewelry for Eliza Lynch. Barrios set a really bad example because we know that he was a confirmed rapist. At least one woman in Karumba and probably more. According to George Thompson, The inhabitants had hid themselves in the surrounding woods, and Barrios sent and brought them back. Their houses were already completely sacked. The women were ill-treated, and Barrios himself took the lead. A Brazilian gentleman and his daughter were taken to him on board his steamer, and on the old man refusing to leave his daughter with Barrios, he was sent away under a threat of being shot, and his daughter was kept on board. 
All whom Barrios took he put to the question, and those who did not give or did not possess the information he required were beaten by his order. I have not found a great explanation for why the Paraguayans behaved like this. My guess? They had grown up in a paranoid, fearful nation that hated outsiders. They were told they were a superior, special people, a unique nation, that Brazil was an empire of subhuman Negroes. These people had insulted and mistreated them and denied them any honor, so they deserved whatever happened to them. When you draw that line between us and them hard enough, you don't just see them as another nation. You stop seeing them as people. This will not be limited to the Paraguayan army in this war. Wait till the Allies invade Paraguay. This is your brain on nationalism. Just to cheer you up, <laughs> on January 6, 1865, a Paraguayan steamboat called the Yipora, commanded by Lieutenant Andres Herreros, captured a Brazilian ship called the Anjambe. Another glorious Paraguayan victory. You captured a boat. Good job. But a few days later, Herreros was loading up a bunch of gunpowder from the captured Brazilian arsenal at Dorados. It was a stupid hot day, his, his sailors were working really hard, and one of his officers was like, hey boss, the gunpowder might be super volatile, we should probably wait till it cools down. Herreros was like, you are stupid, watch this. He walked into the arsenal and got immediately blown up along with 23 other soldiers. The cause of the explosion was probably a static spark, which combined with the hot day and Paraguayan carelessness in, use, in messing with ordnance, turned them into human salsa. Herreros became Paraguay's first martyr of the war, with Lopez organizing a state funeral and a public monument for the handsome young officer. Absolute stupidity, treated as glorious heroism, will also be a running theme throughout this series. Welcome to Jackass Paraguayan War Edition. So, the Mato Grosso campaign had been a success. Paraguay conquered most of a Brazilian province, Granted, it was a lightly defended, lightly populated province, but they did capture a bunch of military supplies, including enough weapons to completely rearm the Paraguayan army, along with livestock to feed the Paraguayan people. Also, they captured a bunch of Brazilian women to use as forced labor, which, guys, you wonder why no one likes you, it's this kind of stuff. But Brazil could only do so much to react to the invasion. They could no longer go up the Paraguay River. The massive fortress of Humaita, the Gibraltar of the south, stood in their way. And do you remember why they wanted the Paraguay River open so badly? Because to march an army overland to Mato Grosso would take months. It would take almost a year. Brazil was basically cut off from Mato Grosso for the rest of the war. Paraguay would occupy it for most of the rest of the war. But the Mato Grosso campaign was a strategic dead end. If Solano Lopez thought that the invasion would distract Brazil or scare them off, he was wrong. By spending all his time and energy invading Brazil to the north, Francisco Solano Lopez had failed to do the thing he had started the war to do, save his allies in Uruguay. At that moment, the Brazilian army was crushing the Blancos, but the invasion of Mato Grosso had not gone unnoticed. Brazil was furious. They had underestimated Paraguay, and they had paid for it, and now they were really, really mad. Brazilian women had been dishonored, Brazilian property seized, Brazilian soldiers attacked, Brazilian territory captured. 
Don Pedro was saddened by the outbreak of war, but he was also incandescent with rage. From this moment on, Francisco Solano Lopez had no greater enemy than Dom Pedro II. The shock of the Paraguayan attack sent Brazil into a frenzy. Citizens donated money and food and even slaves. Hordes of young men swarmed the streets to join the new volunteers, the Voluntarios de Patria. A Brazilian seamstress vowed to make 100 shirts for the military free of charge. The country was on fire. It reminds me of 1914 in Europe, or 1861 in America. This popular enthusiasm was a far cry from how Brazil reacted to the Cisplatine War, or the Platine War, or even the recent war with Uruguay. This was something new. Brazilian land had been attacked. The Brazilian nation had been attacked. Granted, this enthusiasm would dim as the war went on, it always does, but it would never die. Brazil, from now on, was the sworn enemy of Francisco Solano Lopez. And this reveals the depth of Lopez's miscalculation. He had no idea, never even dreamed that Brazil would react this way. That wasn't the role they were supposed to play in his story. This degraded Negro empire wasn't supposed to have the same sense of nation that Paraguay did. It wasn't quite as strong, but it was real. Paraguay had awakened a sleeping giant. In the meantime, Lopez pondered his next move. What the heck do I do now? Uruguay was being overrun by the Brazilians. Time was running out. The only way to reach Uruguay was to pass through Argentinian territory. So on January 14, 1865, Lopez formally requested that Argentina allow him right of passage through the provinces of Corrientes and Entre Rios. And without even checking to see if it was cool, Lopez began sending troops into the disputed province of Misiones. Once again, Lopez had drastically misread the situation. He was relying on the traditional rivalry between Brazil and Argentina, without taking recent events into consideration. Bartolomé Mitre had zero interest in letting Paraguay pass through his territory to help the Blancos. He was funding the Colorados. He was having talks with Brazil. Lopez also, again, failed to realize how his actions would look to other people. From Mitre's perspective, Lopez had just flown off the handle and attacked Brazil out of nowhere. So on February 9th, Mitre responded, No, absolutely not. Argentina will remain neutral in this war. Do not even come into our territory. Buddy, you have fun pissing off Brazil. I'm not going to piss off Brazil. So if Mitre wasn't going to help... Lopez started talking to Justo Jose de Urquiza, the Argentine warlord of Entre Rios. He knew Urquiza didn't like Mitre. Urquiza was the key to all of this. He sat at the middle of the whole crisis. His warlord realm, Corrientes and Entre Rios, were bounded to the north by Paraguay, to the west by the vital Parana River, to the east by Uruguay and the Uruguay River, and to the south by La Plata and Buenos Aires. He was literally at the eye of the storm, and no one knew which way he was going to swing. Would he ally with Lopez? Would he ally with Mitre? Would he remain neutral? Urquiza was the only major player in La Plata whose loyalties were still unclear. Just a big question mark hanging over this guy. Lopez believed, or chose to believe, that Urquiza was on his side. 
together they could scare Mitre off, throw Brazil out of Uruguay, and restore the balance of power in La Plata. Mitre was afraid of this. He believed that Urquiza was still looking for revenge from their last battle at Pavon in 1861, only three years earlier. Mitre had every reason to think that Urquiza would turn on him. Urquiza tried to stay neutral. His big thing was that he just didn't want a war with anybody. So he just played both sides, giving vague promises to both Lopez and Mitre. Finally, Lopez had enough. When Urquiza finally refused to join him in his war, Lopez made an ominous declaration. Then if they provoke me, I shall go ahead with everything. Urquiza was like, Lopez, buddy, what do you mean by everything? But Lopez was out of time. The Brazilian army had laid siege to Montevideo, and on February 20th, 1865, the Blancos surrendered. Brazil and the Colorados had won. Venancio Flores, the crazy cowboy, took control as interim president of Uruguay, a cheerful ally of the Brazilian Empire, and he promised to pay back all the damages the Brazilian settlers had suffered. The news brought jubilation in Brazil. Don Pedro was mobbed by a cheering crowd in the streets of Rio, and Mitre congratulated his old friend Flores on his relatively short and bloodless civil war. Ride or die, homies. Lopez boiled over with rage, blaming Argentina, blaming Mitre for the humiliation of seeing his allies fall. He saw Argentine neutrality, somehow, as just one more insult in a long history of insults. Lopez didn't realize it, but Argentina's neutrality was actually working in his favor. Because Brazil also wanted to pass through Argentine territory, they wanted to go after Paraguay. They wanted to send a fleet up the Parana River to attack Asuncion. But Mitre refused to allow them into La Plata. Like, guys, fair is fair. I'm not letting Paraguay pass. I'm not letting you pass. Argentina was preventing Paraguay from attacking Brazil, but also preventing Brazil from attacking Paraguay. Bartolomé Mitre clung to his neutrality like a life preserver. His government was still fragile. Urquiza was still dangerous. Neutrality was the best option. The last thing he wanted was war. This was why Lopez's next move was his worst mistake yet. The one that truly tipped Paraguay over the edge into insanity. On March 18, 1865, Francisco Solano Lopez's puppet Congress declared war on the Republic of Argentina. Their declaration of war cited Argentina's refusal to let Paraguayan troops cross its territory, their refusal to settle the border disputes, and the fact that Buenos Aires newspapers kept insulting Lopez. That's your reason for war? That? Seriously? One of your main reasons for declaring war in Argentina was that the reporters were mean to you. What? Why? Lopez, you and your stupid freaking ego. What makes this worse, what makes this truly unfathomably stupid, was that it was pointless. The Uruguayan crisis was over. The Blancos had surrendered. The reason for the war, the reason for wanting to cross Argentina in the first place no longer existed. But don't tell that to the Paraguayans. 
Asuncion was full of partying and drinking and celebrating. Finally, after decades of insults and threats and fears from La Plata, now, finally, they were going to have it out with Buenos Aires, their oldest and truest enemy. The Paraguayan Congress promoted Lopez to the rank of marshal and awarded him a golden sword as a gift from his grateful nation, which he personally owned most of anyway. They also begged him to please not leave the country or expose himself to danger, you're too important, which was exactly what he wanted them to say. As we'll see, Lopez was, along with everything else, a personal coward. He was also awarded a salary of $60,000 a year, which was, you know, Everything in his country was already his for the taking anyway. Lopez also set up a whole system of awards and decorations for the Paraguayan army, just like Napoleon's army, though he also ended up granting the highest award to himself. Stupid dictator shenanigans. There were lots of people in Paraguay who realized what a bad idea this was. Foreign Minister Jose Berges, the other Lopez brothers. You gotta imagine Eliza was like, hey babe, uh... You sure about this? But no one had ever told Francisco Solano Lopez no. Even offering a contrary opinion, even showing hesitation, might be seen as cowardice or treason. One Paraguayan senator had to be very quiet when he said to a colleague, Bad tidings, my friend. Paraguay may be able to contend with one country, but with two who are bound to make common cause. It seems to me very risky. But Lopez believed he could take them on. He saw Brazil as weak and corrupt and racially degenerate, Argentina as chaotic and divided. For all Paraguay's weaknesses, for all that it was completely dwarfed by Argentina and especially Brazil, its government was centralized, its economy was strong, its soldiers were brave, and its people were a unified nation behind their glorious, brilliant leader. And they had the largest army in South America somehow, concentrated, ready to launch itself into Argentinian territory. Maybe they could have pulled it off. As we'll see next in next episode, there was a chance for Paraguay to win this, if Solano Lopez had been the military genius he believed himself to be. But as we'll see, he was not. On April 13th, 1865, as Abraham Lincoln lay dying from an assassin's bullet, as Robert E. Lee's army was still walking home from Appomattox, Paraguayan steamboats arrived off the Argentine river port of Corrientes. They opened fire as troops swarmed ashore. Paraguay had just attacked Argentina. The tidal wave of anger that gripped Buenos Aires surprised even Mitre. The Argentinian people were infuriated, shocked, that the stupid little mestizo up the river had dared attack their... their nation. And what surprised Mitre even more was how the Caldeos responded. Some of them remained silent, but most of them, most of the Federalist warlords across Argentina, closed ranks behind President Mitre. Most critically, Urquiza appeared in Buenos Aires and offered Mitre his full support against the invasion. Orquiza even said later that if Lopez had just marched through Argentina without declaring war or attacking anybody, he probably would have let him. He might have joined him. But Lopez had launched an aggressive attack and declared war on his homeland. Orquiza was many things, but he was an Argentine patriot. He rallied to defend his nation. 
Lopez had made the most disastrous series of foreign policy decisions in modern history, not made by someone named Adolf Hitler. His small landlocked country was now committed to a large-scale war against most of the South American continent. Brazil and Argentina, traditional enemies, neither of whom had any reason to fight Paraguay, had been driven into an alliance against Paraguay. Buenos Aires closed La Plata to the Paraguayans, shutting them off from the outside world, and opened it to the Brazilian Navy. And the people of Brazil and Argentina rallied around the flag, stoking the flames of nationalism that had lain dormant in their countries for so long. Wars can provide, or create, the flames in which nations are forged, but war can also burn a nation to cinders. Francisco Solano Lopez had taken the nation his father and Dr. Francia had built, sheltered, protected for so long, and cast it adrift on the currents of war. The rivers that had defined the destiny of South America were about to become the highways on which the Paraguayan War would be waged. Solano Lopez's mistakes had brought Paraguay into war, but it was what his enemies did that would make it the most terrible conflict in South American history. On May 1, 1865, representatives from Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay signed the Treaty of the Triple Alliance. We will go into the fine points of this treaty much more in Part 2, but a few critical items would define the character of this war. The Allies didn't just agree to help each other against Paraguay. The treaty stated that all disputed territories would go to the Allies. Paraguay would pay for the entire cost of the war. All their defenses would be destroyed, especially Humaita, and their armies would be demobilized. None of the Alliance's members could make peace separately until all these demands were satisfied. Finally, the war would only end with the removal of Francisco Solano Lopez. This treaty dictated nothing less than the dismantling of the Paraguayan Republic. The Allies thought it would be a short war, an easy war, a quick victory over a small, insignificant nation. This was their great mistake. The terms of the treaty bound them all to fight a war that would last over five years, longer than the Crimean War, the American Civil War, longer than the First World War. And it would test all these new nations to their limits, because Paraguay was a lot stronger than it looked. The terms of the treaty meant that the Paraguayan nation and Francisco Solano Lopez would fight to the literal death. In the next episode, episode 48, we will continue the story of the Paraguayan War. We will finally get to some serious battles, most of which will be fought very incompetently by both sides, including the neck, the great naval battle of the Riachuelo. Yes, big naval battle on the Piranha River. Super crazy, super weird, get excited. We're also going to look really closely at the armies of the Paraguayan War and see how this whole triple alliance thing shakes out. You think these three countries and all their generals and politicians are going to get along? <laughs> Y'all have been listening long enough for, to know they are going to bicker like children and it's going to be really stupid. Tune in in a few weeks, should be about four weeks I think, schedule dependent, 
for the Paraguayan War Part 2, The Triple Alliance. In the meantime, thanks for listening today. I hope you learned a lot about South America and maybe how not to do diplomacy. If Solano Lopez does it, don't do it. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it, but maybe don't reveal all their diplomatic correspondence to the world. You're not supposed to do that in diplomacy. If you didn't like this, tell your enemies. Just maybe don't fight them all at once. If you want to know my sources, or if you want spoilers, because I did a write-up on this war a long time ago, it's all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. If you want to get in touch with me, drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback, good, bad, or ugly. Again, my schedule is fluctuating a lot lately. I have National Guard drills. I'm going on vacation later this month. I plan to have the next episode out in like four weeks, but we all know stuff happens. Rest assured, we'll see the Triple Alliance and Paraguay making fools of themselves very soon, right here on Unknown Soldiers.